You're listening to Strange by Nature, your guide to the strange, weird, unbelievable, and improbable wonders of the natural world. Thanks for being here today. I am Kirk Mona, and I am joined today by Rachel Ginza and Victoria Thompson. We are all professional naturalists who together have scoured the world for weird and wonderful wonders just to please your mammalian brain's desire for novelty. Isn't that nice? Let's do this. Hello, everyone. I'm starting us off this week, and oh boy, howdy, do I have a doozy. Now, All right. wow. <laughs> this is one of those uh, topics that I was looking around, um, had some planned, was ready to go. Uh-huh. And someone sent me something and I'm like, wait, what? Hold on. Got to do it, right? And then I'm like, well, I guess uh, that really lovely topic that I had planned going to be shelled for another day because... Today I have to talk about the blue whale because I cannot believe oh, that we I just have saw the article to fifty-five episodes, and we have. I did just not. see an article about blue whales too, and I, I'm super curious if it's the same one that Victoria saw and if it's the same one that Rachel saw. It probably well, is. Well, the one I saw was not exactly about blue whales. It was about another creature yeah. interacting with blue whales. The one I saw, I'll just say, was a totally killer article. Yeah. I think we all saw the same article. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Let's let's hear about it. All right. So uh, obviously I went further into this and I wanted to give us a little bit of a background on blue whales in general because they're amazing. And then I need to talk about this article. um, Okay. Because it's truly just mind boggling. Um, so blue whales are the world's largest animal. They have they are oh, not yeah. just now, just in general, like in all of history, they are the largest ever animal, ever, <laughs> which is crazy. We lived yeah. in well, we didn't live in a time of dinosaurs, but dinosaurs have Correct. roamed the earth and they were very large. Um, so Did to, you uh, you hear this sort of statistic all the time? Mm-hmm. Is this by weight or length or all the above? Do you know like how they're classifying that as largest? Because there's so many ways you can measure an animal. That is fair. I think they are measuring it by weight. From what okay. I've been seeing, when they say biggest or largest animals, they talk about... Uh, Pretty much in the same breath, they talk about what they eat. So, and it's pretty astounding. Like, overall, it's it's a large animal. It's very long. It can grow up to 110 feet long, which is mind-bogglingly large. uh, How many? How many Rachels is that? Uh, (laughs) A lot of Rachels. A lot of Rachels. A lot. I would fill a room. Um, but they can weigh up to 330,000 pounds. Wow. Wow. Which is in just, it's so big. And they are found in pretty much any large ocean. And while I was going through uh, some of the research on blue whales in general, 
I actually was finding out that there are four unofficial subspecies, potentially five un- unofficial subspecies of blue whale. Oh, really? Oh, okay. Um, okay. I thought they were all one species, but I guess each ocean, more or less, gets its own subspecies. Um, okay. Because while they all eat krill, which is amazing because it's such a tiny little, because they're baleen whale. Um, right. they eat, um, sorry, I just tiny little thing. <laughs> I just have to interrupt. I know you said mm-hmm. krill, but yeah, because of the audio, it sounded like you said they all eat crow, <laughs> <laughs> which yes, is a different they, thing. It is a very different thing. Um, uh, considering they eat, they can eat up to six tons of krill a day. If they were eating six uh, tons a lot of, crows. of crow, that a would be a crows. lot of crows. <laughs> Um, but it, they are a, uh, threatened species, but that isn't exactly what I wanted to talk about today. Like blue whales on right, their right, own, right. like it's kind of strange Super that cool. they're very large and they have really loud voices and eat a lot of food that is technically really, really tiny. But the article but... that we all saw today, you would think... <laughs> You would think that they're really, being that large, there isn't much that can kill you. There's not much that's going to go after you other than right. like humans, humans oh, that's, or yeah. uh, a lot of issues that they have are like vessel strikes or getting entangled sure. in fishing gear. Again, or ocean humans. Noise. Again, yeah. human stuff. Scientists have now been able to document and have witnessed it. They have it on video. I watched the video. Oh, wow. I didn't see the video. Okay. Oh, me either. Oh, it's, uh, People who don't know are like, just say it. What happened? <laughs> they documented orcas, also known as killer whales, hunting actively a blue whale. And it, not just once. Yeah, but that's, but that's not the weird part. separate times. Three. Um... It was like the first time to really confirm that a blue whale was killed at the same time. And what Kirk was alluding to is what they got on video is while that blue whale was still alive, one of the orcas, several of the orcas were able to like go in and actually uh, warning, little graphic. Yeah, cover your kids' ears. (laughs) They were able to go in and actually were like eating the tongue while the whale was still alive while the yeah, they're like att- attacking yeah. attacking its mouth and eating its tongue yeah, yeah. it was still alive wow. yeah it said that the whale took an hour to die which just mm-hmm. sounds oh. awful that's not great yeah that that isn't great um that oh. was the detail that got me the tongue was yeah pretty yeah yeah <laughs> that's that's pretty rough but here's what a, the thing what, but what an interesting technique i mean right yeah. Well, here's the thing. This is one of three attacks that have been witnessed from 2019 mm-hmm. to March 16th, 2021. So this is very, very recent. Um, mm-hmm. And it took them a long time, anywhere from 45 minutes to 90 minutes chasing and hunting and actively, like, getting the whale to go underneath the water and not allowing it to surface to breathe 
like tearing parts of the whale off, oh, man. Um, slowing it down. And then after the whale died, they actually had um, up to 60 orcas feeding on it. Wow. Yeah. So yeah, not but... even the original pod of orcas, just a bunch of orcas from other pods all coming and eating this large mammal. It's like I, I'm picturing like an all-you-can-eat buffet, you know, and mm-hmm. you you, you want to get your money's worth, so you you really tuck in. That's or maybe like this. I'm picturing like the state fair. Everyone's just gorging themselves. That's what I'm oh, picturing yeah. here. More or yeah. less, yeah. Well, I mean, it's not, but it's amazing because like scientists thought they knew that they had eaten on already deceased uh, blue whales, but there was no evidence of them actively hunting Hunting, a blue whale before. Mm -hmm. Uh Orca orca are amazing animals. They really, really are. Um, But I, I wanted to touch on this today because it was truly phenomenal and it's uh it's horrifying um because you don't really want to see orcas like actively eating an animal that it's is still alive like that's not great i mean nature is not pretty (laughs) no it's not but the steps that have been taken to be able to see this type of uh, research and see this phenomenon happen not once but three times and confirm and find something new about the largest creature on the planet truly science is amazing and hats off to those researchers truly did you have any info on like where in the world this was happening australia no wonder you were pausing so long yeah Uh, you had a funny expression uh, on your face of course (laughs) it was off the coast of western australia Uh uh-huh uh-huh yeah of course it was it wasn't a setup i really didn't know i know i know i i saw that it was australia and i was like oh they're gonna ask of course it was Um, yeah, and I just want to talk about, or I just want to give credence, or not credence, credit to the um, paper, uh, which was quite literally just published last week for when we're recording. Um, it's the first three records of killer whales killing and eating blue whales um, with by, oh goodness. John Potterdahl, Rebecca Wellard, Isabella Reeves, Brody Elbison, Pia Markovic, Machi Yoshida, Ashley Fairchild, Gemma Sharp, and Robert Pittman. Um, They all did an excellent job. They're all researchers over in Australia um, and one in Oregon. So that's fun. (laughs) Um, And they did a really good job on their paper and... uh, Congrats on to them for finding that out. So that's what I have for you all today. Uh, we're gonna take cool, a. Oh, thank you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, we're gonna take a brief break, and when we return, it'll be Victoria. Mm-hmm. 
Strange by Nature podcast is brought to you by listeners like you who have joined the Society of Strange, our membership group on over at patreon.com slash strangebynature. Society of Strange members can join at one of three different membership levels and help support the show and also get some fun stuff like water bottle stickers or access to a super secret content. So a thank you to those who have joined already to help make this podcast possible. If you haven't joined yet, we'll see you soon over at the Society of Strange at patreon.com slash strange by nature. See you soon. All right, guys, I want you to imagine. I'm ready. That you are a rain gauge. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. So uh, done. Is, uh, all right. So uh, I, I'm a little tube. Yeah. And I fill it with water. The whole purpose of your existence is to collect precipitation and to measure it. Okay. Uh, you're made in a okay. yeah. You're made in a factory with a whole bunch of other rain gauges. They get sent to places all over the world. So after Bye, a long friend. journey, this is the weirdest <laughs> intro she's ever done. Have myself. you checked the name know, of our podcast? Yeah. Okay. No, that's good. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm here for it. You have a long journey. You arrive at your weather station. You're installed. Mm-hmm. You settle down mm-hmm. and you wait for some rain to come so you can collect it. Right? Is it a long wait? Well, nothing comes on the first day. Yeah, skies are completely uh, clear. Boring. A couple <laughs> weeks pass. Nothing happens. Uh-huh. Okay, maybe it's the dry season, you think. I'll just wait a few months. A few months pass. Still no rain. Finally, it's I'm been upset. a year, and you have still not collected any rainfall. And with not a sinking so feeling, drop, huh? you start to realize what kind of a place you're in. Oh, no. The desert. Mm. But, not just but any that's desert. my only job. So this uh, rain, this anthropomorphized rain gauge was unlucky enough to be installed in the interior of the Atacama Desert, which is the <gasps> oh, oh, I should have oh. guessed. That's what I was gonna guess. Oh, <laughs> oh no, the driest place on earth. Yeah, a um, whole year with no rain. Oh, more than that. Uh, there is oh, so much there. extreme about this desert. It's really an amazing place. So I just I felt like I needed to talk about it. So some quick geographical Wonderful. orientation. The Atacama stretches about 1,600 kilometers, that's about 1,000 miles, uh, along the west coast of northern Chile between the Pacific Ocean and the Andes. And uh, Mm -hmm. so there's some outlying regions that are sometimes considered part of the Atacama, sometimes not, and those include parts of southern Peru, southwestern Bolivia, and northwestern Argentina. So hopefully your geography is good enough, you can kind of picture where we are. So getting back to that year without rain... There are actually some parts of the central Atacama that have never recorded any rainfall. And uh, other parts of the desert in average rainfall in recorded history. <laughs> Rachel, put, put your job back in place. <laughs> okay. Um, other parts of the desert, the average rainfall is 15 millimeters per year or less. That's a <laughs> centimeter and a half uh, or less right. than an inch. Right. Over the course of the year. Yeah. yeah. Woo. So you're saying it's dry. Yeah, it's dry. Okay. It's a dry it, heat. I was about to say, is it a dry heat? <laughs> well, it's actually yeah. not that hot. I was going to, I was no, going to talk about that really, later. It, it's high elevation, right? Well, not exactly. I'm going to talk a little bit later okay. about why it's not so hot. Uh, okay. But the other thing about this desert is it's old. 
Some deserts are not that old. For example, 10,000 years ago, the Sahara was more like a dry grassland and was used for grazing mm-hmm. cattle. Uh, but mm-hmm. based on the geological record in the Atacama, it's been dry for an astoundingly long time. So what's called the hyperarid core, that's the central part of it, has been hyperarid for 15 million years. Oh, what? Oh, my. I'm sorry. Yeah. That was longer whoa, 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 than I whoa, whoa, whoa. thought. Did you say million? Million with an M. Million. Yes. Million. And okay. arid, even if not hyperarid, for at least 150 million years. Oh. Yeah. Crackers. Yeah, real dry. Oh boy. For a very, very long yeah. time. It's been used to study what conditions on Mars might be like. That's fair. Yeah. So what you might be wondering why it's so dry. Yes. You know, Victoria, I was just wondering why is it so dry? Oh, I could tell you. Yay! The reason that the central Atacama is so extremely arid is it lies in a double rain shadow. So the prevailing winds for that latitude are from the east. Uh, So they go over the Amazon and kind of area of South America. And as the air rises over the Andes, it cools and expands. And cooler air can't hold as much moisture moisture as warm air. So um, all the moisture precipitates out of the air, basically a snowfall in the Andes. And so then the air passes over. And when it comes down the western side of the mountains, it's very dry there's the pacific ocean uh with a lot of water it's known for having a lot of water in it surely that would help well first i feel another rain shadow coming well we're getting to the second rain shadow uh but first of all this the area of the pacific there has a cold northward current called the humboldt current and it also has a semi-permanent um counterclockwise high pressure system that forces any humid air away from the coast And in addition, the central Atacama is separated from the ocean by a coastal mountain range that does block any sort of moisture coming in to the interior of the desert. So that's the double rain shadow. However, the other areas of the Atacama do have um, some fog so that that cold water off the coast can create these dense fogs that'll be blown onto shore at certain times of day and will blanket the coastal region of the desert there. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about what that does mean in a moment. But this double rain shadow for the central Atacama means that in those areas, there are literally no plants or animals that can survive. It is completely barren. There is some microbial life. Of course there is. Why wouldn't there be? Yeah. It's adapted to the extremely dry conditions, and they actually eat soil nitrates. Okay. Yeah. Why not? I don't know. Don't ask me any more questions about the metabolism of these microbes, because I don't Uh, really know. Oh, okay. Okay. I'll just shell those questions. Okay, (laughs) go ahead. So... In the parts of the desert that receive small amounts of rain and get this fog, life does find a way, though. So there are whole sets of plants and animals that are adapted to capture whatever moisture they can from this fog and use it to survive, which is pretty cool. And similar to what you may have heard about places like Death Valley, when these less mm-hmm. arid parts of the Atacama do get rain, there's a, a super bloom phenomenon where the seeds that have been lying dormant for years 
use the rain to quickly flower and reproduce, which is a pretty amazing sight from the pictures I've seen. I believe that. That'd yeah. be just phenomenal to see. And, oh, so I mentioned that uh, it was not a hot desert earlier. That cold offshore current of um, the Pacific is actually what keeps the temperatures pretty cool. So huh. the average summer temperatures are actually around 18 degrees Celsius, 65 Fahrenheit approximately. So it's really not that hot and it can get quite cold at night. All right. Now I get to the sad part. Uh, actually, what I said earlier about the poor rain gauge never having received rain in the hyperarid center part of the Atacama, no longer exactly the case. So uh, like most other parts of the globe, it has been experiencing extreme weather due to climate change. And in 2015 and 2017, the central Atacama actually did get some rain. There was no super bloom in the hyperarid hyper areas, though, uh, because they've been dry so long that there are just no seeds to, yeah. right. to bloom. So there was some rain, not like a ton by our standards, but a huge amount for a place that never, ever, ever gets any rain. And this filled these ancient lake beds where some of these nitrate-eating bacteria are found. And it was actually devastating for them. It was a mass extinction event for these bacteria. Oh, oh wow. Yeah. Because they're completely, huh. they're adapted to completely dry conditions and, and that amount of moisture was just not something that they could handle. They basically exploded. So, okay. uh, yeah, it's, wow. it, things are changing. Uh, and it was kind of interesting in the sense of um, getting back to the Atacama being kind of an analog of what Mars might be like a bit. So, you know, the theory that there might be life on Mars, if it's, if it's bacteria that have adapted to a dry, cold climate, it could be something like this. And if humans wind up colonizing Mars, we could be killing the life there without even realizing it. Hmm. We start, start getting surface water there. Right. Right. Yeah. 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 Huh. Wow. Very interesting. Fascinating. Yeah. So that's, uh, on that note, yeah. that's what I have for you on the Atacama <laughs> yeah. Desert today. Well, I mean, <laughs> awesome. I'm, I'm just really just thinking about, it's phenomenal that life, Really, Kirk, you keep saying life finds a way. Like, well, Jurassic Park says I mean, life yeah. finds a way. Um, but the fact that things have been able to adapt to such dry conditions like that and that there's been a desert for millions of years and more or less right. one yeah. place, that's, that's crazy. That's the part that, that blows my mind the most is just how long it's been there. Yeah. Oof. Thanks, Victoria. You're welcome. I just wanted to call out uh, an article uh, that I read that was a study on, on what happened when those rains came. It's called Unprecedented Rains Decimate Surface Microbial Communities in the Hyperarid Core of the Atacama Desert. And it's by A. Azua Bustos and colleagues in Scientific Reports. So uh, shout out to that article. Cool. Thank you. Yeah. When we come back from our break, we're going to have Kirk. So it's funny that uh, both of you kind of were inspired by uh, scientific journal articles this week. Yes. Because an interesting journal article came out back in November 
in the uh, Biological Sciences edition of the Proceedings of the Royal Society. And it was called Punctuated Evolution in the Learned Songs of African Sunbirds. I'm sure, you know, you all read this. One hundred percent. No one read this. It no is, one read this. It, it is on my nightside table. I read it every night. Oh, good. Well, this is actually an open access journal. So if this piques your interest, just know that you can get the entire article online for free, which is wonderful. And I wish more journals uh, would be open access like this without charging the authors tens of thousands of dollars to do so. <clears throat> Looking at you, nature. Mm. Anyways, um, that's a whole other controversy going on right now. But this story starts off with also with a thought experiment, uh, much like our thought experiment, uh, not you're not. I'm not going to ask you to be a, a rain gauge, but <laughs> I just want you to think: if we had a time machine, and we could go back in time, how many bird calls do you think we would recognize? And more specifically, like, would we recognize bird calls from 500 years ago? Oh, absolutely how not. <laughs> how about how about a thousand, ten thousand, a hundred thousand, a million? So. No. Like, how, so how far back do you think we could go here's, and still recognize calls of familiar species? Just any, any guesses? Here's the thing, Kirk. Yeah. I'm not good at recognizing bird calls <laughs> now. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. Assuming you knew the bird calls in the first place. All right. I do know a couple. Okay. Well, I have, I don't, I don't know if that I have a, a guess even really, but I have a right. sort of a question or some musings, yeah. I guess. I know that there, there are some species that transmit their calls culturally, at least to some extent, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, there could be like white-throated sparrows, for example, right? Oh, we're going to talk about them, yeah. Yeah, so they have different, you know, you collect a white-throated sparrow from Ontario and it's going to have a different, uh, different song like a dialect. than the yeah. Minnesota white-throated sparrow or whatever. Okay. Uh, I don't know. I, I my impression is that that's not the case for all birds. That there are some birds where the call is the same all like over chickadee? its range. Yes, mm, chickadees aren't. No. One of the things we're finding actually, um, and you can there's an amazing website called Zeno Canto, where which is X E N O Canto, and this is um, where people, just average citizen scientists, are uploading bird song from around the world. And researchers are finding out that there's way more variation in like dialects than we probably ever knew before because mm. instead of one researcher, mm. there's like thousands of people uploading stuff. So I love citizen um, science. Yeah, super, super cool. So, like you were saying, though, one thing we do know is that bird calls change over time, right? So, we have documented changes in bird calls in some birds in a shorter time span of a human life. Like, someone's like, hey, this sounds different than it used to. I, I even remember it sounding. So, we are actually witnessing real-time evolution of birdsong in the white-throated sparrow, which you mentioned. Uh, many listeners who are birders know that there are essentially two different songs they sing, mm-hmm. and one is actually rapidly spreading and taking over the other. Really? So, you know, when I when I was first learning, or some of you into birds, you might have learned that the call of the white-throated sparrow is, oh, sweet Canada, 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 Canada. It's kind of the pattern they do. Mm-hmm. But there's actually a second song you sometimes hear them doing, which is sort of a sweet Canada, 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 Canada. It's like a shorter version and things are inverted. And that song, that second song, is like climbing the charts and becoming more (laughs) popular with white-throated sparrows. You know, it's just a new pop hit. They're they're switching over and singing that more, uh, which is kind of fascinating. Hmm. Um, But what what we don't know is, is this just the latest change to their call? 
and these changes happen frequently or has that call been was that call stable for maybe like thousands of years and this is just all of a sudden a recent change and that's like a real thing like how do, how do we kind of tease it apart so to put it simply scientists want to know is song evolution in birds like a constant gradual change or what we would call punctuated so punctuated meaning it's stable for a very long time and then there's quick short periods of change only once in a while and so this is something scientists have kind of puzzled over and we can watch single changes happen in real time but it brings up this interesting puzzle of like how do we know what bird songs sounded like in the past especially the distant past and we may want to know if bird songs evolve gradually or in a punctuated fashion but in the absence of a time machine it really does seem like like an interesting yet impossible question to answer right mm -hmm. yeah like i i now i mean i'm sure if we took if we were able to take this time machine back a hundred years, we probably even two hundred. I don't mm -hmm. think we would recognize any of this. We'd be like, oh, that looks like a chickadee. What? What song? That's one of the bird songs that I know. Uh, well, I mean, we have we have we have written records of people describing bird songs like right. the Oh Sweet Canada Canada or Oh Sweet Canada 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 that one, and so we can like we can look to those sort of written descriptions to kind of get an idea for some bird calls. But yeah, after a certain period of time, if you go back like a thou couple thousand years, you know, uh, there you're not going to find much description of like exactly what bird songs sound like. Although some mm -hmm. people have, I know in the past, attempted to like use musical notation to like record bird songs yeah I uh, which have is a really kind of cool book. idea it's um or i have a book about that and i can't oh what is it called it's uh, they make um uh, a certain graph with it too oh like a sonogram yeah, yeah. i don't yeah, think it's cool. a sonogram is it i think that's what it's called but if you go like on xeno canto they have uh all those little Mm -hmm. Sonograph or whatever it's called. Like sonograph, probably. Sonogram is what sonograph, you get when you're pregnant. Yeah, sonograph. That's why I'm yeah, like. Yeah, sonogram I... is different. Sonograph. That's, there you go. Yeah, a sound drawing. So, and, and there are apps you can get even like uh, on your phone now that will show you the different uh, sonograms of sonographs. Spectrograph. Ah, sonographs. <laughs> spectrogram. Sonograph. Woo. Spectrogram. Uh, yeah, okay. Spectrogram. Yeah, you can get that of uh, different things as well. So, Anyone who's listened to the podcast a bit will know that one of the things that I really love is when researchers are clever and can figure out interesting ways to tease answers out of seemingly impossible situations. Yes. And that is exactly what these researchers did Ooh. without the use of a time machine. They so didn't use a time machine? They Well, they kind of did in a, in a way. I'll explain it. So the species they chose to study was the eastern double-collared sunbird, which sounds like a single species, but it's actually a whole like comp complex of closely related species in okay. Africa. And this is a mountain montane bird. And we already know a lot about sunbirds, including that their songs are learned from their parents, just like Victoria was talking about. Okay. And so as opposed to being like maybe instinctual or something. So it definitely has to be um, passed on like from generation to generation. So there's at least the potential of songs changing very quickly. Right, because it's it's a learned behavior. It's a giant game one of, the of other... uh, telephones. Exactly. So one of the other interesting things about these sunbirds is that they inhabit essentially islands of habitats on the edges of mountain forests. This means even though there are many discrete populations of sunbirds, they are geographically cut off from each other and have been 
four thousands of years. Oh, and there's ooh. sort of the little time machine, right? So uh, this, you know, provides us with like a geographic time machine, if you will. The researchers were able to compare the songs of sunbirds that clearly shared a common ancestor, but had been separated for thousands of years. And they could compare the songs. So if, for example, two sunbirds have essentially the same song, but they've been geographically separated for 10,000 years, then we can reasonably assume that the song both species are singing is you know, the same one that they were singing 10,000 years ago when they were not separated. Right? That makes sense? Yeah. So it's a really cool and kind of fascinating idea and interesting thing to study. So I will say, if you read this research paper, uh, they went all out. It wasn't just like listening to bird songs. They were sampling different species, doing DNA sequencing and doing cladistical analysis to figure out how closely related each different species was. It's a really dense and a fascinating paper and the upshot though is that they do believe they can show that bird song evolves two ways at least in this species um, it does change gradually over time but it can also change in rapid punctuated manner uh, the punctuated change is probably related to new selection pressures say like entering a new physical area whereas slow changes to the song are associated with slow gradual evolutionary change while a bird is staying in one area uh, they also noted that small changes to songs that accumulate gradually may not be useful to distinguish genetically distinct populations. However, like big changes in song that happened rapidly probably also correlate with rapid genetic evolution. Um, and I, I don't think they were saying that rapid genetic evolution and speciation causes rapid change in bird song, but rather that the new evolutionary pressures are coming to a new area can cause both genetic change and changes to birdsong. Okay. That makes sense? Yeah. Uh, you know, there's even talk about like maybe if you're in a, a, um, those birds that are the ones that are most likely to leave and explore a new area, maybe even like need to change their song because they're having to communicate over a larger area with a smaller population. There's some interesting kind of ideas around that. Um, so anyways, if... Uh, if related birds have a distinctly different song, you can possibly assume they have uh, distinct genetic variation as well, which is, is pretty neat. So it's all super cool and amazing research, but I have to admit what really drew me to this story was the question I started off asking you, which was how far back could I go and recognize bird songs, right? So how the far study back showed can you go, Kirk? Well, the study showed retention of song characteristics in populations that had been separate for over 100,000 years. Oh, wow. Oh, okay. Yeah, uh, it's phenomenal. Now, when I first heard about this, I was thinking that meant that like the song had stayed unchanged. And I, I don't think that's actually the case. No, I, I think what they're saying is that, yeah, certain aspects or characteristics of the song were unchanged in, cer in certain populations. So, I mean, it could be as simple as the bird sings at the same frequency or like, sings the same five notes but the order changes so i mean i made that example up but you get the mm -hmm. idea it's like there was yeah definite they could see those um th there was a correlation between those but it doesn't necessarily mean that you'd be like i exactly know that but oftentimes you know if you hear a species that's even kind of similar you're like you know it sounded kind of like a a bluebird and you're going oh it was a I'm used to the Eastern bluebird. It was a mountain bluebird. They have a similar sort of song to them. So okay. I think they're showing that those things correlate. Yeah. Um, interestingly, in North America, 
because we had glaciation so recently within 10,000 years, mm-hmm. that caused all kinds of, you know, populations to be broken up and, 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 and switched around in North America. So I think in order to have birdsong as unchanged for a really long time, you need to not have like um, huge, you know, geologic changes and stuff that's going to make populations move around. Moving into new habitats is, it seems like what can often spur a change in song. So yeah. anyways, overall, it's a really fascinating paper. The authors go into some, you know, details of looking at what the forces are that could work to keep songs the same. Um, and also why they might rapidly change. Uh, but both those areas are ripe uh, for new research and just like really fascinating, bizarre, like ideas coming out of what may, why, what the forces are keeping things the same and changing. So really exciting area of research that we're hopefully going to hear more about in the future. Yeah, that sounds really fascinating. Like seeing That's... how the, just what? <laughs> Yeah, it's a yeah, super cool get, experiment. Very clever. Until we get a time say. machine, that's like that is the best we're gonna be able to do. Oh, you you can't do much better than populations that have already been separated for thousands of years. <laughs> right, right. Well that's that's what I have. Uh that's 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 what we got today. It's it's funny we all brought, you know, essentially three different research papers to the or less to the yeah. the strange game today. So Woo. thanks for doing that and we'll uh, see everybody next week. See you next week, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Thanks, everyone, for listening to today's show. Be sure to subscribe. New episodes drop every Wednesday, and we love sharing this strange world with all of our listeners. If you would be so kind as to leave us a five-star review, that would be great. It lets other lovers of the strange discover the show. You can reach out to us on social media by searching for Strange by Nature Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can send us an email as well. Our address is contact at strangebynaturepodcast.com. If you want more information about the show, you can also check out our website, which is strangebynaturepodcast.com. Until next week, get outside, stay curious, and embrace the strange.